Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that takes you into the world of classical music and beyond with the fabulous London Philharmonic Orchestra. In today's episode, recorded backstage at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, you may hear some background sounds, but of course this place is a hubbub of musical creativity. But we'll be looking at one of the most famous composers of all time, Gustav Mahler, particularly known for his epic symphonies. He wrote nine symphonies, well, perhaps nine and a half, more on that later. And in this episode, we'll be hearing all about them. I'm joined by clarinetist Tom Watmo and percussionist Keith Miller. Great to have you both back on the podcast, Tom and Keith. Hello. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Now, I have to start this off by saying congratulations, Keith. Uh, everybody I've seen today has told me, you do know that Keith has just started his 50th season here at the LPO. Oh, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Time flies when you're having fun. I think there must be some mistake about the arithmetic there. <laughs> But I did start out when I started. I was the youngest member of the orchestra. Now I think I'm probably indefinitely, in fact, the oldest. <laughs> you don't plan it that way, but that's the way it works. And I've been very happy doing that. I so. can imagine. I can. And how was opening night for you? This, for this, this current season, one. yeah. Well, this is probably going to be my last season. So to do a massive piece that we did, a very successful, very dramatic concert, uh, it, it, it just seemed right. Well, no, congratulations again. Thank Literally you. everybody I've seen today has told me about Keith, so <laughs> I'm celebrating you. I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> no, sorry. it's a great thing. It's a great achievement. Well, today we are talking about Marla's symphonies, and I'm going to ask you a very difficult question to start off with, Tom. Mm. In one word... How would you describe Mahler's symphonies? I'm going to go for all-encompassing, which is two words, I'm sorry. I'll um, let you have that. Mind you, you if it's hyphenated, maybe it's all right. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> all-encompassing, that's my one. And why? Because they are. They've, everything's within, within Mahler's symphonies, according to Mahler anyway. That's what the aim was. But all of humanity in, in, inside it. That was a bit heavy to start with. but No, I think yeah. that, that we're starting as we mean to go on. I like it. And Keith, is there an additional word that you would add to that? Uh, no, I'll just say one word. Epic. Oh, and what, why? Because they're all, they're all different in their own way, but because he tries to encompass everything, I think he must have been... Um, there was a lot to him, whether he was, some people say, narcissistic or neurotic to a certain extent mm -hmm. in that his music's so very personal that he did throw as much as possible into them and, and that they're all absolutely epic in their own way but different as well that's the fascinating do you think that's coming from a player's perspective or as the listener tom a listener yeah if you're you're playing in it you, you have to be focused on what you on the job in hand and uh, you can't let yourself go and be completely mm. washed away by it all and for you then, Keith, being a listener, do you get to listen to the whole orchestra where you're placed uh, when playing Mahler? Well, more than Tom does, because uh, he's playing most of the time, I would say, and the string players most of the time. But we often have complete movements where we're tacit, which means we don't, we're not playing anything at all. Mm -hmm. So we can sit and enjoy it, surrounded by it. Unfortunately, where we sit in the orchestra, 
I mean, in the middle of it, you can get swamped all around, but we are usually right at the back. So we've got a board behind us or sometimes the audience behind us as well. But in front of us, we've usually got the horns Uh and we all love horns. They're wonderful instruments. I always wanted to play the horn, but it's far too difficult. But in Mahler, especially, especially his bigger symphonies, which about half of them are really big, he uses eight horns at least and the horns blow backwards because of the shape so the shape true. of them yeah. so if you're sitting right behind them you get a real a real blast from the horns it's physically really exciting <laughs> absolutely marvelous to a certain extent yes. but but after a while uh, you know you, you can get a bit so we, we we get a very funny effect because we can hear the heavy brass over at one side we hear the horns while they're playing we hear nothing else whatsoever so we always think of the audience behind us yeah. Those that sit behind us must get a very distorted, basically, view. Well, audio view. <laughs> What's the word? <laughs> uh, the, the sound of the orchestra must... must. They like to watch the conductor, though, and they like to watch what we're doing as well. Yes, so it's, it's a live performance. But they, they get a distorted view of the music, which we do all the time. Yeah. It's nice to be able to walk in the percussionist's shoes for, for, for a while. That's good. <laughs> and, of course, you are performing Mahler's ninth, fifth, and the Adagio from his 10th symphony in your current LPO season, which is exciting. What are you looking forward to the most? I suppose it's the ninth. I've not done it for a few years. Years ago, I, I did it lots of times, but uh, no, it's, it's been a few years, so I, I need to get reacquainted with it again. Great. And yourself, Keith? We have to say that we're not doing all those symphonies on the same concert. No, not at all. That would be quite a... <laughs> <laughs> a heavy a heavy night but you don't have necessarily favorites we look forward to them all because they will all have different conductors different circumstances and therefore you've got something new fresh every, every time model nine is vladimir i think vladimir yurovsky and whatever he does is always very very interesting and tell me about your experience of playing myla with different conductors, are there any performances or experiences that really stand out to you? Well, I've been very, very lucky because I started young in this business. I've been around for a while and I saw the last of the old school conductors, if you like. And some of them were um, getting on a bit. They've, in fact, they've passed on a great number of them. I mean, I've done Mahler 3 with a conductor who was dead. Sorry? Effectively <laughs> dead this is Otto Klemperer and this was one of the first things I did in London with the Philharmonia Orchestra he had to be carried on to the rostrum he had a doctor sitting there he actually contributed very little but he had put the work in beforehand so his reputation went and went before him Stokowski was another one conductors they like to carry on but to see the change and then then to have done the sort of in-between Conductors like Mazur, for instance, mm-hmm. Schulte, and various other conductors. Now, now seeing the younger breed of conductors, we've got Vladimir Yurovsky, who does who does Mahler a lot. All the various other conductors. to see that change gradually from the old school. You know, as the, as things develop and change, that's what's absolutely fascinating. I think I think I'm very lucky to have been able to witness that over the years. And you said some some amazing names there. I mean, Otto Klemperer, a friend of Mahler. Do you think that there was something extra? I know that you say, you know, it, it was towards the end of his life, but something 
extra that the orchestra gains from having that connection, that thin thread to uh, the composer? Uh, well, absolutely. It is because conducting is not much about waving a stick, a white stick or anything like that. It's about the communication. So when you are working with people that really knew the composer, for instance, we worked a lot with Schulte, mm. who used to work started his career working with Richard Strauss in the pit. He was his assistant. So we got the continuity, yes. if you like. Vladimir Urofsky learned conducting from various conductors that had worked with people like Borodin. Continuity is the yes. word, I suppose, yeah. And Keith has said there that it's very hard to choose a favourite. But, Tom, do you have a favourite? My favourite symphony were four. I always like the more intimate bits of Mahler. And four is... Those moments with the slow moment and the um, opening to the last, they are the, my favourite thing within Mahler. In Mahler 2, it's the same as the Ehrlicht movement. It's the intimacy of that. That's the thing that, that I'm left with the next day. It's not the bombastic yes. crash and bang of the end. I'm haunted by Ehrlicht. I'm looking over at Keith, he's looking over at you. Uh, Keith, can I offer you the same question? I mean, what do you prefer or what did Mahler do best? Uh, the symphonies on an epic scale, like two or eight, or the intimate moments, like four or five? Well, as Tom says, the crash and bash and so on. Yes, I mean, there is, there is a lot of, of, of that sort of music as well. But you're absolutely right. It's the quieter moments that Mahler creates. And we're always interested in that because he goes for atmosphere, doesn't he? And he gets a particular atmosphere. He, I don't know where he lived, but there's somewhere in Austria, Switzerland, and he loved the mountainsides and so on. And he, a lot of his music reflects where he was at the time. And things like just the distant sound of cows, for instance, cowbells, and that's part of the atmosphere. And the difficulty for us when you're in the festival hall or wherever is, it just says in the music, cowbells are heard. Ah. If they're not playing specific music, you just have to recreate what you think or what the conductor thinks that Mahler wanted. So to recreate the sound of cowbells, you get genuine cowbells and so on, but they sound a little bit incongruous very often. Sounds like somebody wheeling the tea trolley around the back <laughs> or washing the dishes or something. And every conductor has a different point of view. Right. Because the conductor say, oh, we would like this, we'd like that. And then they say, no, no, that's not it. No, no, that's not it. No. Uh, Klaus Tenstedt, who I think was the best Mahler conductor ever, he, he was just absolutely extraordinary. But he kept saying, no, 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 it's not, it's not that sort of sound and so on. So we had a frame of cow, all these cowbells hanging when we were recording this at Abbey Road Studios. And he said, no, no. And we said, well, could you show us what you actually would like? And he himself, Tenshtet, went up to this frame of cowbells and he just touched one. 
And of course, it went clang. He said, oh, my God, <laughs> ran away. He said, I see what you mean. Yeah. And the same with the hammer blows in Marlowe 6. All it says in the score is a blow of fate. That's it. That? I mean, it doesn't... It, well, exactly. Yeah. What's that? So that's what... Different conductors have different ideas. Marlowe had different ideas. Sometimes he, he wanted them played. Sometimes he didn't. Mm. But what is it? It's like some of Wagner's stage directions where all it says in the score is a dragon appears <laughs> and it's left to the performers. How do you interpret that? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do about it? So every conductor has their own idea. So the, the, the mallet thing sometimes is done with a big mallet hitting it in a wooden box or banging on the floor. We've had a conductor's rostrum sometimes. We're hitting that with a hammer as well. Uh, and of course, where Marlowe symphonies were originally performed, completely different acoustic. Mm. The famous one with Leonard Bernstein in Ely Cathedral, don't quote me, must be Marlowe too, mm -hmm. I think, in the 60s or 70s. That's what makes you think, because in the 60s, the Marlowe symphonies were relatively new to this country. I think the first performance of Marlowe three was done something like 1960s. Wow. They just weren't performed very often because the huge orchestras and so on, and they weren't that popular. Then gradually they've, they've got into the, the psyche. Do you enjoy that part of your job, Keith, the experimentation and trying to figure out what the composer had wanted? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes your imagination can run right. Other times you just think, well, well, we're never going to get this. Contemporary composers, with respect to them, sometimes write for very, very impractical mm. ideas. And the London orchestras, for instance, the LPO is, is marvellous. We're based at the Festival Hall, but we can't spend a lot of rehearsal time there. So you don't have time to experiment and get things set up and, and so on. You just have to, to go for it and hope, hope for the best, to, to a certain extent. And we've heard the Tom about how Mahler writes for percussion. How does he write for your instrument? That's a very interesting question. I think it changes throughout the throughout the symphonies. I mean, my job with the LPO is, is uh, E flat clarinet, the piccolo clarinet. But how he writes differently uh, as you get to the later symphonies is very interesting. And he starts to realise that the, or he seems to realise that the E flat clarinet is not just a ridiculous instrument just for parody, as he as he writes in Mahler two. But it's much more melodic, and so by by the time you get to Mahler Nine, Mahler Nine, there's some absolutely beautiful moments with the E flat clarinet that I don't think you see in the others. Mm. There's a the whole range of clarinets from, well, if you take the clarinet in E flat, clarinet in D in Mahler uh, Five, and then clarinet C, Mahler One, and, and other others, clarinet in A, clarinet in B flat, mm. bass clarinet. There's a big range of instruments, and gradually he changes how he, how he uses them, I think. And tell me about clarinets in the air, or the klezmer moment in Mahler 1. What uh, is that? Klezmer, klezmer. Uh, that's, there's a moment in the slow moment of Mahler 1 where there's a marching band that comes through. Klezmer, of course, klezmer being the Jewish way of playing, is absolutely fantastic, and the forthright. And we had a big lesson on this, actually, because... Before, as a member of the orchestra, actually, Keith, you, you remember this, there was a joint concert with Kurt Mazur oh, yes, with the Israeli Philharmonic at the Albert Hall, so Beautiful. big space. Yeah. So we joined forces, and uh, I think I'm right saying, I think the LPO took the brunt of the first movement, and then the Israel Philharmonic took the second one, which is the slow one, mm -hmm. isn't it? But they had a most incredible way of playing this marching music, the klezmer, and it just blew our socks off and it was a real it was a real lesson it was so so forthright it was so out there outlandish 
and big and brash. I'll never forget it. It's informed my approach to it when it comes up these days. That's really interesting to be able to still take and learn and adapt. I really love that side of, of your job. So what is the clarinets in the air? Saltrister Alf, I think, is, is the name. We all stick the clarinets over the stand and it's it's supposed to make it more audible, I suppose, sure. and, and perhaps a bit harsher. But sometimes I think it is a visual thing. And, and, and when, when we do it, I, I quite like it when all the clarinets are very strict about when they raise the instruments yes. and when they put them down again. And then and the, the visual thing is adds to it somehow in performance as well, a little bit. A bit like the bow markings for the violins, isn't it? Is that everybody in unison? That's really nice. That's very effective, if I may say so, mm. always. And Myla does do that. It's, it's more than just focusing on the orchestra on the stage. It's, it's spatial, isn't it? It really sort of makes you think. And I, I had the pleasure of experiencing Myla too just recently, all 90 minutes of it, I must say. But actually having the offstage instruments. Why do you think Myla went to do that? Well, it's partly recreating the atmosphere and just sounds he's aware of in the background. But it's always very difficult to interpret, once again, because you have some instruments at the side of this stage, Mm -hmm. some of them up at the back, you know, and there's rooms behind the organ. It's always difficult from a practical point of view, arranging cameras so you can see the conductor, all that sort of thing. So how they did it in Mahler's day, I I don't really know. And there's always a potential for disaster. In Mahler too, there's an offstage band, brass and percussion, I think it's just brass and percussion, that come in near the end and it has to synchronise with what the rest of the orchestra are playing. It's quite a tricky bit, isn't it? You know, it goes quite fast and so on. And there are many performances. You'll hear a Bernstein recording on the BBC from many years ago without the offstage band because they were still in the bar. (laughs) And it's difficult that they didn't get the call and it didn't, they didn't call it, all, all these things. So there's always a potential for disaster there. Talking of things going wrong off stage, if you don't mind me talking about your department, Keith. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We are... love that on our know, off stage. <laughs> Depends yeah. what you're going to say. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you were involved, maybe you're not. I, I, think it was, I think it was the LSO, uh, the concert at the Barbican. I'm sure it was the Barbican because it was a hall where the audience could make easy access to backstage. And the cowbells were going on, and somebody stormed in from the audience and said, Do you mind there's a concert going on in here? <gasps> no! <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's, that, that's happened a few times. Okay, <laughs> I, but the worst is surely Mahler, what's the off-stage flugelhorn solo? Oh, yeah. That's Third yeah. Symphony, and has got this wonderful slow movement with the, like a, a kind of trumpet, you know. The, yes, um, yes. Uh, it's supposed to be a post-horn. Is it a post-horn, yes. Yeah, but they do do it. It's, it's usually played on a... Anyway, it's it's absolutely wonderful. And it's usually played up in one of the boxes, perhaps, right. or off stage. And it has happened before now. There's a steward, an official steward, who sees someone going to pick up an instrument oh, no. and blow into it. And they say, stop the thing. 
<laughs> keep on playing, keep on playing. But when it does work, it is it's absolutely stunning. Oh, it's just the, the distance of this post horn solo, yes. the distance. Fl- the flugelhorn, the flugelhorn. Flugel the way that it melts into the oh. first flugel, the writing is actually incredible. that's absolutely that's what when you say what you like about Mahler, Tom's put his finger on it. It's the writing, it's the orchestration, isn't it? Mm. He was just such a master of doing that right from the first symphony. Uh, created his own his own sound world yes. completely. Yes. It's so distinct. Yeah, totally. And of course he didn't get to complete his tenth symphony. Have you performed completed versions of it, or do you think that they should still feel like Mahler or just play what he'd got to? What's your take on it, Tom? There is one is there one movement that's complete of Mahler? That, uh, yeah, he'd started down off to one, do hadn't he? Yes. And, and it, did he complete it? I, I honestly don't know. No, I couldn't say. Say. I'm not a fan of it, but to be honest, when it got to get to that stage, it's it's so um, maudlin. I don't know. I should, maybe mm. it's sacrilege to say that somebody's listening. That's going, how dare you? No, well, we all have but, our, our uh, opinions, absolutely. And the trouble is, after Mahler, uh, after the ninth ninth symphony, which is uh, is what you might say a valedictory. That's his sort of farewell yes. one, and it's difficult to follow that. So mm. Just leave it there. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, it's really interesting yeah. to hear because sometimes you don't know if the musicians that are playing the music have a heart, have emotion, have an attachment and, and a, a thought about it. So it's, it's really intriguing to, to find out. What do you think is your best performance of Marley yet? Keith, I'm going to give you time to think. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> do you have sort of a resonating experience where it really just shook you to the core? I think of what many experiences like that because if you play with a good orchestra and it all goes pretty much well Mm -hmm. then it's going to be earth shattering the music speaks but certain conductors have taken it to another level for me i think i think marla one the first movement just keeping everything on ice for so long until the explosion of nature or whatever whatever it's supposed to be it just the slow burn I'll, i'll never forget that brilliant lovely memory and Keith, can you remember a Mahler experience that has stayed with you? Yes. It was quite an extraordinary event, not because of the music only, but because of the circumstances. Mm. It was Klaus Tenstedt. His health was dubious and he often didn't turn up or wasn't able to turn up. But on this occasion, we scheduled, which is unheard of, Mahler 8, which is a massive symphony with the choirs and the eight yes. soloists and so on. Absolutely massive. And at that time, he was so popular that people were queuing up outside the festival hall for tickets. And we thought, this was 80s, 1980s, something, uh, we thought it was worth trying out not two, but three successive evenings at the festival hall here. And people were queuing up for that. It was unheard of. It's on Blu-ray. There's still an an extraordinary visual performance of that. And Malerich, with the crowds, because of it was Klaus Tenstedt and because it was Malerich, which is one of the most, the most epic, <laughs> it's either epic or, or very epic. <laughs> um, a good but to do th- that three nights running with the emotion that went into it, he was a wreck afterwards. He was always drenched in sweat and so on. But the emotion that went into that and those particular circumstances, that's probably got to be one of my all-time favourites. Something you can't recreate. Yeah, you can it's never, everything yeah, just comes together. Never forget that one, yes.
when you think about pairing Marla with another piece of work, you know, sometimes, uh, for example, April 2023, there's an LPO concert titled Music from the Shadows, which includes Shostakovich, Violin Concerto Number no. 1, uh, Thomas Larcher, Symphony 2, and then Marla Adagio from Symphony Number no. 10. So really oh, yes. bringing different elements together to create a theme. What role do you think Marla plays in, I mean, can he fit into different themes? Vladimir, uh, we did... Um uh, Marla 8, we did Speminalium by Talis. Yes. To go absolute segue straight into Marla 8. You know, I was wondering why, why you would have done that. But the sound world of the choirs and everything, it must have been such a shock, the Veni Creata spirit at the beginning of Marla 8, which is such a oral you know, mallet blow. Like, And did it know. work? I think it did, you know. <sighs> I think yeah. it did. It did, yes, definitely. But then that's Vladimir for you, isn't it? Yeah. He's, he's done a few experiments like that, and he's got the imagination to do that. I see um, when we do the concert you just mentioned, that's with a very fine conductor. He's the young, it's Klaus Michaela, oh. who's only 25, 26 or something, who's just been appointed to the Concertgebouw. Is that not so? A principal conductor, Fantastic. and we discovered him. Well, not not exactly, but we, we, when he said <laughs> yeah, a couple of years ago, when he came in, we all said, "This chap's going fast." So this will be another uh, an interesting aspect: a young conductor doing the, the adagio. And is there anything in his approach that you think will will change? playing the adagio together we have yet to see Ooh. you'll have to come you'll, you'll be there i'll be there april 2023 29th of it april is. 2023 yeah. that's really exciting well it just goes to show that a body of work that really has taken orchestras conductors as you said through time there's still so much you can do with it and i guess that's a mark of a fantastic composer is it not absolutely yeah thank you so much for sharing with me keith and tom it's been an absolute pleasure, Yolanda. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Tom Watmo and Keith Miller for taking a deep dive into Marla's 10 symphonies with me. Please get in touch on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at LP Orchestra, or to me, at Yolanda Brown. And thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. I'll see you then. Bye.